McKenzie, space again, gets the pass away for Lampy! Yes, welcome along to the All Blacks podcast, proudly brought to you by Vodafone with myself, Jay Reeve and Ant Neetle. Joined today by the one and only, well, he's a childhood hero of mine and a very good friend now, uh, Josh Cronfeld. Welcome along to the podcast, mate. It's been a while in the making, but we are glad to have you here. Stoked, mate. You know, it's only, what is it, 10 o'clock at bloody night? <laughs> but yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Well, that's the beauty about the podcast, man. People can uh, listen to this at breakfast time, lunch, or dinner. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> we've got to make Sorry. it, we've got to make it, we've got to make it relevant to all that are listening. Hey, uh, what are you up to at the moment? Obviously, that's a loaded question because I know exactly what it is that you're up to at the moment. But for those people that have been big fans uh, of yours, like myself and Ant, uh, that are unaware of what you're doing for a crust these days, because you've got quite a few irons in the fire, don't you? Yeah, look, I don't think I've ever known what I wanted to really do in life. And so um, other than starting a family, and, and when I found the right woman to do that with, because that's bloody hard, you know. <laughs> Teach me. I mean... <laughs> There's nothing there. you, can't, you can't be taught. Sorry, Ed. Um, but uh, you know, once I sorted that that out and, and got a couple of kids under the way, you know, that was the focus. And and my wife, she's um, she's kind of next level in in terms of wanting to be focused in her business. And so our roles kind of got reversed in traditional sort of New Zealand family. And so I was, you know, bringing the boys up at home. And uh, so I need to have. I guess a work ethic that allowed me to still be hands on and doing the yards, you know, with the the milk bottle in the face and and changing nappies and and whatnot and and still bringing enough crust to be feeding everyone, you know. It's an interesting one because uh, you you went through university. We're going to touch on that a little bit later. And now you're you're a qualified and have been a qualified physiotherapist for quite some time, which would be enough for people. Would be enough for a lot of people because there's a lot of effort that goes into that. Uh, but not for you. Uh, you do the stuff with Crowd Goes Wild. You're a great reporter, and you've really opened that up as probably adding that another string to your bow. Uh, and in between that, you restore classic cars. You've got a, a, a vast property portfolio. Uh, Jeez, <laughs> I know it's sounding really good. Uh, I wish it. I wish it was that that clean and car. And you're doing the uh, motivational circuit um, with uh, getting people to walk over coals. This is amazing. Hey, let's just before we climb into all of that, let's just drag it all the way back to to the Hawks Bay. Uh, a young Josh Cronfeld. Uh, starting to throw the footy ball around. At what age did you sort of really start leaning towards the the rugby ball? Uh, look, uh, I was late starting, I guess, in the scheme of things. You know, like I wasn't, um, I think there was bab- badmintons and midgets in those days. And I think I started at nine or ten, which, you know, like today kids start at five, you know. So um, a bit a bit slow in the outtake, but I, I definitely loved playing sport. You know, that was, it, it didn't actually matter that it, whether it was rugby, soccer, Cricket, volleyball, basketball—you know—I was having a crack at it all, you know. Well, and and I was talking to someone the other day about you know the mentality of of sport and how I thought about it. I kind of just love to be doing it, and it, to the point where I wanted to make it as hard as I possibly could for myself to still be victorious. And I don't know whether this is a competitive sort of thing that started, but I, I can remember, distinctly remember going, looking at the teams, you know, when the, the, the you know, you, you, at lunchtime, you know, everyone's working out the teams and you arrive and you go, okay, that's the weakest team. I'm going in that team, you know? And I don't know whether it was just to just test myself or I just wanted to be a cool bastard. But, I, you know, I just definitely put the pressure on myself to be better in, in really high-pressured situations. And and so it started way back then, you know, and I kind of journey, you journey through sport as a young kid and um, doing all different sports. I mean, I swam, you know, I mean, and then I fell in love with surfing. Fortunately, not too much because I don't think of, you know, like most of my mates that were surfing are still, are still deadbeat surfers. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Maz Quinn's a nice bloke. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that that's all they – they did, you know, they, they live for it. And, and, um, and yet I was, every weekend I was still doing all my sports. You know, Friday Friday would be basketball and then Saturday would be uh, rugby, you know, in the winter. And then there'd be volleyball and tennis and cricket on the Saturday, you know. So it was all, it was happening the whole time. And then I swam competitively and, um, you know, and, and, and 
it was it was it was just all that growth period to that led into being a rugby player, I guess. So what kind of student were you, mate? Because uh, you're a young... Not nappy. a good one. You're a lovable rogue. You get your report card, your parents are casting their eyes on it, and it says Josh Kronfeld is a... Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I don't think I was the best student, but I don't think my teachers fully hated me. There's probably a couple, you know, um, but I had potential to be better than I was. You know, I, I was a good average C, you know. I was confident in that, the occasional bad boy would float in there as well you know I was good at PE I was got yeah. A's there and you know the high high marks there but um, school I don't know if it just really sat quite right with me you know it wasn't until I actually went to university and I went from being this uh, the C to D student and suddenly I was a solid B you know like that was it, it was such a I guess the dynamic of how you were taught at school didn't really fit in my life at that time. But then when I went to uni, it was like, I didn't feel like I was at school anymore uh, in terms of time and, and application. But the application that was going on was high quality because, you know, there was repercussions for what, what was going down. You know, I was throwing money away if I, didn't, <laughs> if I wasn't being successful, yeah. you know. If we go back before you hit uni, how much of a role did your parents play in, oh, in your sporting endeavours? Because we have spoke about a link that that your family vehicle was almost the team bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my dad had a, um, a K Bedford, and uh, so that's a it's a big decked truck. You know, it's 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 a no, it's an old school truck. I think it was in nineteen thirty eight or some stupid. Picturing thing like a big brown one as well. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, it was uh, it was racing green, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, get on with it, um, and. Dad used to just pick up all the kids, you know, like we'd, we'd, we'd have a designated place and um, we'd arrive there. And in Hawke's Bay, you know, there was probably the same five parents the entire way through my schooling, sporting career um, that were, you know, taking all the same kids, you know, uh, through through the journey of, of sport. And, um, and you know, to pick us all up, we'd all be yahooing in the, on the back of the truck and, you know, in those days, you know, it was okay to have a whole team on the back of, the, <laughs> of a truck, you know. And I distinctly can remember my dad still leaning out, you fucking kids, sit down, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then, you know, at this, on the flip side of that, you know, buying ice creams and, and ice blocks uh, for the team on the way home, you know. I mean, uh, the fact that they were only five cents in those days kind of, <laughs> you stretch a dollar a long yeah. way. Uh, I remember you uh, fondly recounting a tale where uh, the windscreen of, of a vehicle that you oh. were in ended up going bust, and you had quite quite some distance to travel in the middle of winter. Could you just, I mean, <laughs> fill in the gaps for me? Yeah, so we had a family holiday, and we went with uh, another family, and and as you do in those days, um, we put the two families into a Valiant Ute station, I mean, not station wagon, you know, with a, a Valiant uh, Ute with the canopy on the back and the window punched out in between. And so we had my uh, father was driving, mum and the other mum in the front and all the kids and the other father in the back on a mattress with all the, you know, blankets and everything for the, for the holiday. And we were heading up to... Um, up north to go skiing, uh, or just get in the snow, really. And um, we're driving up the Napier Taupo Road, and um, the first thing that happens is the, the lady in the front goes, oh, I'd love one of those. And she was looking at a wool truck, and it had the big bales on. And within, I reckon, 15 seconds of, of her saying that, this bale falls off the truck, bounces in front of the, the our ute, and bounces right over the top of us. That's a nightmare. Yeah, and, and, and not realising that this is the start of a crazy trip, um, you know, Dad pulled the truck driver over and, and whatnot and said, hey, you lost some load. And, and then we carried on and we're going up the, up the road and, and this logging truck's coming down, down the hill and Dad sees this massive rock uh, come flying through the – and it sat in the – went right through the windscreen and sat on the, on the front dash there. And so they punched that out. And so then we drive up and we get onto the top of the plane. So at this stage, you've got no windscreen. <laughs> no windscreen. So it's like a big wind and tunnel. So Final the, destination and so, so the wind, so everybody's sort of wrapped in blankets and stuff. And, and the wind's just blowing straight through the whole vehicle. And, uh, and next thing, 
my father, he sees it and he pulls up. They've got the blanket across them in the front. He pulls up the blanket on his side, but the the, the two mothers duck under and a whole swarm of bees goes flying through them. <laughs> like the end times. And to the back of the ute. Uh, everybody got stung. Um, uh, it was, yeah. And, and of course, when we arrived, we had to, we was, there were still bees in everything. <laughs> You know, like you're having to, you, you know, you open up a, a, a packet of wheat bix and bees would come out of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, the the decision was made when you finished school with uh, with moderate marks to head south for university. The yeah. first choice would have been yeah, possibly. Yeah, but this is a rugby show, man. You should be asking me about you know my time in Hooks Bay and the rugby. Like the rugby in, in Hooks Bay is fantastic. Like why'd it, you leave? It, like. <laughs> No, I mean, coming uh, off the, the Red Philly Shield, the schoolboy well. stuff's just mind blowing. Yeah. Like there's a there's a competition called the um, the Ross Shield, yep. which is um, I, I, it's what's the Auckland equivalent here? Um, Roller Mills, Roller I think Mills, it's a yeah. similar sort of age group, um, eleven to twelve, um, the intermediate sort of space, and it's massive, and it's it's definitely changed over the years, but it, there was this big kudos, and so your whole thing was about making this team, and then you had to be under the weight as well. So, like, you know, you'd be in your, getting weight in your underpants to make sure that you'd come underweight. And it was, it, and all the teams from within Hawke's Bay or the, or the local region, and in those days, Taupo was included, uh, Central Regions, uh, Danny Virk, I'm, so, I'm sorry, um, uh, yes, Danny Virk, Wairo, um, so there were it was it was massive. And also all, all these kids would all come in and play this crazy-ass tournament. And it was like... I, that was the first time I ever had the buzz to really want to do well in rugby. Because you know, then you get selected to play for your province, yeah, don't yeah. you? Yeah, and you yeah. End up, yeah so the, you end up making a Rush Shield team um, for Hooks Bay, and you get to you know try and steal a black black and white hoop jersey. That's epic. It was. Uh, it's one thing that's always perplexed me. I skipped. We had the equivalent in the Bay of Plenty, so we had Goldfields, which was the the original one where you were about ten. I could, oh, there's no way I was going to make weight for that, so I just sailed past. And I think weight for that was like, as a 10-year-old, it was so 53 you were kilos. the same, same so, size as you are. No kidding. Kidding. Mate, and, then, and then when it got to Ty Mitchell, there wasn't, there, I don't think there was a single bloke, maybe two, in our Ty Mitchell team. And we were towed on the west, and we went on to draw it with uh, a Rotorua team in the final. Not a single one of us made weight. And we were just, I'm talking as an 11-year-old, wrapping myself up in glad wrap and putting like 30 footy jerseys on and on one of those like infomercial steppers in the lounge for like two hours a night just trying to drop weight. <laughs> it, and you go, then all of a sudden we play Auckland and it's there's blokes rolling off the bus with a moustache yeah. and uh, and they're running in 110 kegs. Is there, the, the question being, is there a need for that level of footy at that age? Does it take the fun out of it or does it excite you? And secondly, when you get into secondary schools, uh, is there, and this is, an, this is an open question because I know that a lot of people have got a vested interest in it, is there a need for First 15 rugby to be televised or uh, by creating these showreels for these First 15 teams that it leaves a lot of people sort of a little bit disheartened and going, that's the end of footy for me because yeah. without that showreel, I'm not going to make a, a, a Mitre 10 Cup or a Super Team, so therefore I'm not playing club rugby. I, I can't distinctly say, given how it all pans out now, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's distinctly different, but some of that essence was existed back in my day. You know, like... <sighs> You know the weight categories and not being able to play in teams and stuff like that. But it also, I mean, you know, everybody's so worried about a little white guy having to tackle a big, massive, you know, hundred kg Samoan boy. You know, like it's that's that's okay, man. Yeah. Like I reckon, like the the things that I remember, I I pretty much for my whole junior sort of before I got to high school played out of my weight category. So. Um, I went along to, to Bantams. This is when they said, look, come on down if you want to play rugby. So I went down to the Bantams, which was my weight category and my age group category, and nobody was there. Clearly, <laughs> I got something wrong. <laughs> but I remember where the midgets were. So I, I rate, you know, because back in, I ran everywhere in those days in, yeah. in Hastings. You know, like I had trials over the other side, like 5K away. I'd run there to the trials, play the trials, then run home. You know, that sort of shit. And um, but I, I I got to the midgets just as they were kind of forming up to to have the, the first trial, 
And they and I and I says, oh, you know, come for the rugby. And they says, you're a bit small. And I says, yeah, I'm a halfback. I didn't even know what a halfback <laughs> was. Man. Didn't have a clue. But I just remember seeing, um, oh, what is what was the Ingl- out of Inglewood, um, the halfback. You know, all black, uh, one of the greats. <laughs> just got black. Too many brain injuries. Um, you could pass it, could he? <laughs> great halfback, great halfback. Gone blank, terrible. Can you cut this piece, please? <laughs> um, and and so I played halfback, and so it meant that I was out of my weight category for pretty much that entire time, and um, loved it, loved it. But I also learned core skills on how to tackle a big guy. Yeah. And no, nobody ran around me in those yeah. days, you know, and I was tiny. So obviously you did a good job because you would have stuck out like dog's balls, the smallest guy on the paddock. You're chopping guys out of the ankle. How did you go? Oh, yeah, man. I made the rep teams. I, like, Were you a skipper as well? Or did you have to do oh, some greasing up to the coaches? Because like, that's what I had to do for most of my career and it never I was worked. never a greaser, mate. Okay. What, greaser. what position were you then? Because there played, are no loop. Uh, at, at what point did you transition to the, um, to the side of a scrum? Because there isn't any side of a scrum until you hit sort of, what is it, 13-year-old yeah. sort of footy. Like, I, I liked blindside. That was where I first started. And uh, I played a bit of hooker um, in high school as well. And then it was, um, I, I remember one coach saying, oh, we need you to play open side. And I didn't want to play open side because I like blindside. And uh, so clearly um, I ended up at, at open side and that was that. And it, it sort of, it, it, I don't know, I just kind, kind of came to understand it and, and, and it worked well. And, and even even making first 15 was um, purely luck. You know, the, the, I guess the Hawks Bay star, you know, a guy called Cameron Stitchbury played New Zealand sex, um, was, you know, made all the, all the, all the New Zealand teams and, 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 and age group and stuff. And he was our captain and first of the first 15 and, and, and the open side. And he got a, a concussion, which uh, finished his his career in rugby um, and so I got pulled out of the second 15 and in fifth form and that that was my entrance into uh, into first 15 rugby I remember the Tealti come down from 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 uh, down south or came up from down south and um, they brought their whole school in about three or four buses and there's a from our pavilion out to our ground there was maybe like a, a hundred meters that you had to jog across or walk across they lined up uh, their whole school between our ground and our pavilion and huck at us all the way through. And it was the freakiest thing I've ever had happen to me because I can just remember everyone was five times bigger and yeah. I was just going, this is the scariest shit I've ever been involved in my life, you know. And um, But, I mean, what school turns up at your school and then huckers you out to the, yeah. out to the start of the <laughs> game? It's, it, you know, it, it, was, it, it was – and our, our school at the time, um, we didn't even have a hucker. You know, like I think um, by seventh form, um, Mr. Morrison, who was the, who ran the the multi-culture part of of the school, which was just budding then, um, designed the first hucker. And now, when you see, and we were awful, we were awful. But now, mm. when you see Hastings boys do it, wow, yeah, it's, it's freaky. You know? And you're part of that. I mean, obviously, was it Super Eight schools then as well for you? Were you part of that, that uh, Super top, Eight top four, the quadrangular? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had to play. Um, teams all up and down the the, the North Island, and um, you know, like uh, within your inter schools, and then when it got up to the they, they kind of weigh everyone against, it'd be oh you've got to play this school next, and you've got to play this school next, and then all of a sudden you're in top four. So you finish up, and what what was the decision? What was the driving decision? Did you know that you wanted to be a physio, therefore you had to go to Otago, or was no, it you wanted no, to you no. wanted so to get away? I from wanted the to be a PE teacher. How hard is being a PE teacher? I thought I wanted to be a PE teacher. I really, it was the dumbest decision of my life. But um, but but you you look at your PE teacher and you go, this guy just told me to throw a ball around for (laughs) the the whole time that I was at at secondary school. When do you go to train to be a PE teacher? She's tough. Yeah, I I thought they had a, they had a pretty uh, gifted life, the school teachers, uh, especially the PE teachers. Yeah. And uh, ours were pretty gifted with a cane as well, and I thought I'd be good with that. <laughs> <laughs> but they, unfortunately, they changed that up. Um, so I, I went down to – and it's a four-year degree. So I got accepted um, three weeks before I sat exams. 
or two, two to three weeks before I said exams. So I, already, I was already going to university. I didn't need to do exams, so my exams weren't great. I think I remember I had, I had nine days of study for a chemistry exam. I, I, I think I uh, surfed for, for eight of them. You're at the you're at the cooking guardies as well for the other one. Yeah, well, mum and dad were. I'm sure I shouldn't really say this because I'll, I'll probably crucify myself for next Christmas. But um, I uh, used to wake up, you know, and go and sneak out of the house at like sort of five o'clock in the morning, go surfing all day. And dad would get up and they they wouldn't wake me up because they had my own room and and I think and then they come they come home. I get home at four o'clock. Really tired, crawl into bed and have a snooze. They think I have an afternoon snooze because I've been studying all day. And uh, no, I've been surfing. It's been good. But you made it. <laughs> you made it. So obviously, you uh, you failed miserably at at PE because it is tricky. It's basically first year health site. So you'd be sitting in there with the doctors uh, and physios. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I, so I turn up at uni, and um, you know, my my it was hard. It was definitely a different, but it was so different. You know, you got. How much you put into it was how much you got out of it, and suddenly, I like I was I, like I got straight B's in my first year. That's like uh, unheard of in the Cromwell yeah, family, you know. Like yeah. especially in the boys, you know. And what was the what was the code? Where, how did you transition? Oh, how did you the transition code, into the code the was hard, mate. Like I, I didn't I couldn't make any team. Um, so uh, I, I I made the varsity A. I'm oh, sorry, the varsity blues. Which was uh, the top cult side, um, and so that was a that was a bit of a, a coup, you know, because um, the trials were super intense uh, back in the day. You know, like uh, back in the day, they had three to four ta- three to four teams, you know, uh, at, at cults level. Now it's like they run one, two tops, you know, and um, and the, so the trials are fantastic. So to make that, that was kind of a, a buzz, but. So I'd gone from everything Hawke's Bay to not being able to make anything Otago, you know. Was that because of the sort of environment you guys were down, in there down there? Because being a scarfy, mate, and you're living the dream there, you know. Oh, you're no, look, it's good, mate. But like uh, the coaches that I had uh, through my university tenure, and they, one of them ended up being one of my all-black coaches as well. So yeah. um, I was really lucky, uh, you know, I was surrounded by – and. and Really good players as well, you know. Lot, lots of those players went on to play um, for Varsity A and, and and different provinces around around the country, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 amazing. Uh, university rugby is probably next to schoolboy rugby is probably the the closest rugby to schoolboy rugby. And schoolboy rugby first fifteen is the best rugby you'll ever play, like ever, like better than. The All Blacks, like, tenfold. Like, I mean, everyone will have different views, but school rugby, you're playing with your mates. Just, there's a bond, there's a, you know, like you're just experiencing all the things that you do as an adolescence growing into being a supposable adult. And and you're discovering that all together, all in a team atmosphere, all trying to do the same thing, all trying to, you know, go to the top four and, you know, in seventh form. Um, it, it's, it's fantastic. And, 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 and you're buying into the same thing. It's, it's, it's just a, I, I mean, I don't know what other guys would say about first 15 rugby, but for me, it was pretty special. I remember one time that, um, the, the fields had been closed for like, I don't know, maybe two weeks. It was just a mud fest and the whole first 15 plus the seventh form were out playing, um, you know, um, Bull rush, bull rushy, scraggy rugby, whatever you want to call, it, just covered in mud, and and the and then all got brought in front of the the principal, and couldn't can't really suspend, you know, <laughs> the whole senior school. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, but it was the funniest, most amazing time, you know, like and and it, it was just good time, and the, and the, and the other things I remember, you know, like just um, the first parties I went to were with. First fifteen, like you know, as fifth form getting dragged along with seventh formers, and you know, you know, I didn't know what a girl was until until I've been hanging out with the, with seventh formers, you know? <laughs> like, all that sort of stuff. It was just a massive discovery, and and and, and it's like it's the most magical rugby you ever get to play. It really is. So when you're at, you're at uni, and that's in that coming of age, where this is where your your friend groups are at its biggest, yeah, and, and there's and there's a level of popularity that goes with that, and there's a level of popularity that's always stuck around, and the stigma in and around footy players, 
what made you stay in Otago? Why, why did you not want to go back and see what was what was back in well, the bay? Yeah, so the the transition was uh, it's a four year degree, so that's a massive uh, chunk. So that's going from an eighteen to a twenty one year old, pretty much, you know. And um, I guess uh, I was wanting to play the next level of rugby because you know, like I, I went from there and I played for university and. University A and playing amongst a pretty amazing team probably would have beaten any team in New Zealand uh, at club level at the time. Um, I mean, it had had all the names, you know, like um, Aaron Penney, um, uh, John Timu. It's just um, surrounded by and lots of players that end up playing for other provincial teams as well. Going back and playing in Hawke's Bay, um, you know, or the Bay of Plenty, just. It was just full with stars and lots of guys that were playing for Otago at that currently at that time. So I was just getting this wealth of experience in a in a team that just had a great time doing fun stuff. You, know? you talk about you talk about how you've never really been the one that's made it and you've never really been the one that's at the forefront and you struggle to make every team. Sixty nine games for Otago as a union is is nothing to sneeze at. And at what point did you? F- just sort of shake the impersonator uh, syndrome that comes with with footy sometimes, and feel like you'd actually earned your spot within that team, within the Otago team. How did it start, and at what point did you feel that? Yeah, look, how it started is is Gordon Hunter. Simple. Um, like I'd clearly been doing what I've been doing at, at club level, but I couldn't make. I'd I'd been invited to under 18s um, trials. Um, been invited to come down and sit on the bench and then not sit on the bench. Uh, same thing had happened at Colts and they picked the, you know, the Targo players that were there um, and they knew and knew them well were getting the choice ahead. And that's that, that was fine. Um, but I, I couldn't make a team. And then I remember um, uh, at uh, Gordon Hunter, he, he rings me up and he goes, uh, get out of there, this is uh, Gordon Hunter. And I go, oh, how you going? Um, clearly not knowing who he was <laughs> at all And obviously it was in my voice And he goes, oh it's the Targo coach boy And I says, oh how are you going sir You know, like, And he says, look, I've got a plan Plan is, you come down and you train with me And I went, okay So I went down and so um, I just thought, you know There was just all these Otago uh, The Cooper brothers, you know There's all these Otago greats um, um, That were there performing and I was training with them and I just thought well this is an opportunity and so I trained like an idiot you know I was just headless chicken doing twice as much as as quick as I could do it and um and and that season sort of rolled out I got one game um for the uh, president's Otago side and um and I and Gordon Hunter uh, so the season finished, and I said to Gordon, "I want to come back and play sevens. He says, "Yes, that sounds perfect." And I went home, and I'd had a bit of a, um, you know, you know, as as men do, we think we fall in love, and 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 I'd had a bit of a, a, a heavy breakup with a girl that I thought I was in love with, and um, and so I went home and trained like a, a crazy man for for three months, and and worked, you know, seventy hour weeks, and and. And put on basically 10k, and and then went home. I went back to to play sevens, and um, and as you know, as a, any person, when you go from an 88 kg, which was my first game for Otago, to going from 88 to 100, that's 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 massive change, <laughs> you know. It's like, and I remember at sevens, and we were we were doing, and I because I've been training so hard, and I sort of got up there, and uh, slowed back and had a few beers and you know with the boys and that I think I've been overtraining and everything just went overnight and um, and it was suddenly easy and I can remember running around backs and going geez what's going on there <laughs> or a big four to come over and I just go big Cromfell plant in the face and it was he'd just fall away and I said wow this is kind of great and um, so we did the sevens tournament. And the sevens went really well for me. I had a uh, great run with the Targo team, and 
Uh, we um, dipped out, I think, just on we won the South Islands and, and dipped out on the on the nationals um, in the final. Uh, but it set me up for the start of what was Super Eight in those days, and um, and uh, Gordon. So I got picked in the Targo team, and unfortunately for the the incumbent, it was the guy who was uh, Tony Hunt, really superb uh, open side. He was the 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 current seven for university, so I had to sit on the bench behind him, and he was also the next choice behind Paul Henderson, and Paul Henderson had gone back to Southland. And so he was going to be the obvious choice, but unfortunately for him, his retina disconnected from his eyeball, and so I got a chance. Crazy injury! I know. Is that a finger on oh, the iris? Or? Oh, look, it jumping. happened happened on at a sevens tournament at the sevens. So it was just pure bad luck, and uh, so it kind of gave me like a, a, a road in, and um, and everything kind of just went to plan from there, you know. Like I, I got to play um, that '93 season uh, was pretty mind blowing for me because I got to play against all my people that I'd looked up to and watch, you know, the likes of Michael Jones running around or Paul Henderson running around and and going head to head with some of those characters was like, wow, how good is this? And then kind of going, oh, Jesus, not that hard, you know, thinking. That, that was going to be the next level, you know, um, and it and it was it wasn't. It was just at the same level I've kind of been playing, and you know, in my mind, you know, and it was like that's kind of when I started thinking, you know, maybe the All Blacks could be an option. But you're playing in an unprofessional era there, Joshy. Was like where was your vision? What was the actual goal? Because were you getting any crust there at that no, present? No, no. So I, I think when I finally was part of the Otago team. Uh, and I shifted to a Lambra Union. Um, there was there was always little deals going on, and my deal was I used to get a sack of meat, <laughs> goat <laughs> meat, or yeah, was it a genuine? Yeah, no, I like to have it have sausages, you know, a corned like beef a quarter, roast, yeah. quarter beast sort of yeah, home yeah, kill. Yeah, it was just like <laughs> no, it was a sack of meat with just with all sorts in it, man. And I never know. And then I'd, I'd take that home to flat, and then I'd hand it out to all the different because I don't eat that meat, don't eat that, you know. Or, and um, and and so you'd have all these little, so you could use that as a contra deal for something else. Yeah. You know, I you get you, know, you can have that corned beef and you get a dozen piss. You know, so there was <laughs> there was lots of there was lots of that going on. And then as I kind of moved into the next sort of realm of 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 you know started edging into maybe being all black. Um, the union gave me a car to drive. You know, so I had a car to drive around, and but. The deal was with that car, I had to pick up John Leslie, Mark Ellis, <laughs> and make sure they were at training. You know, there was, that was, it was, so there was all these sort of um, little, little sort of factions. And then I know when, um, when uh, it was sort of, I was starting to make the sort of top end stuff, I was getting uh, a little bit of my, you know, like a, maybe $15 of my rent paid by my club. Um, and 20 by Otago Rugby Union, and the rest was being topped up by myself. And that's when I started being uh, a Z teacher. Yeah, absolute rock star stuff. Yeah. Um, with that, with just to go back to the go back to the footy, it was that era where you're talking about the likes of uh, Sir Michael Jones and his defence and all of that defence from those those loose forwards in particular. The the open side, they were heavy, heavy, heavy hitters on defence, but it was. Was it the sevens possibly that, that brought that extra flair? Because you were the first, in my opinion, and probably popular opinion, to turn that defence into attack. Your ability to get on the ball and get through somebody with the ball was the first that anyone in world rugby ever really saw. And I think that is possibly, if you look back on it, which is what set you apart from all of your contemporaries, is that you were a couple of years younger, you had the fitness and the st- the fitness of a sevens player, the lines that you were running were completely different to any other seven line that was being run as well. And what basically shaped the likes of, you know, whether they'd admitted or not, the likes of Richie McCaw and those, and those great, those great open side flankers that, that rugby has seen. Was that a conscious decision? Or was that a trained decision? Was that a coach decision? Um, I, th- I think it was a, a, an essence of a lot of things, you know, like um, I, I, I worked out very quickly um, that I like to have the ball in my hands, and I, it was like, well, how can I do that? And lot, you know, lots of people don't pass the ball, 
So I figured, you know, at the tackle or the breakdown, that's an opportunity for me to get the ball, you know, and possibly get to run with it. Um, and the other, because no thing, one's going to give it to you. You just got to steal it off someone else. <laughs> yeah, that that was. So there was a, there was that, there was that sort of thought process going on. Did you uh, practice it though? Because it was um, something that didn't look. It didn't look like anyone else knew what was going on. There was a way that you'd hit, and that sort of your shoulder into the top of the chest or the sternum, and then that rip down and twist that you would do. That you'd always hit somebody at the same pace and come running past them with the ball almost at the same pace in which you connected. Oh, I think I practiced it a little bit. You know, like I. Once I kind of understood the mechanics of it, but I also, you know, I talked about playing lots of sports. I did, I did karate and I did judo and I did wrestling. I did all those sort of things when I was younger as well. And when I was at phys ed school, we did all those pracs as well. So you, you're learning these all these different traits and skills. And I guess I, I, I had the ability to apply lots of those things in, in any given situation, you know. And the other thing that I kind of, I, I learned really quickly is that, you know, um, I always want to be like Michael Jones. Like, <laughs> want to be, I like, want to be Mike. like Mike. I want to be like Mike. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, who wouldn't? In 87, and, and, I, and I saw him pre-87, you know, I remember my dad watching um, an Auckland game and going, you've got to watch this kid, you know. And I just went, wow, he's amazing. And then 87, we all saw how crazy good he was. Mm. And, uh, and I thought, I've got to be like that. I've got to be like that. So I tried with to have essences of that part in my game and because he, he had a like a vision and an understanding that um that was kind of again different to any seven in the country at that time you know um and so but at some point i realized that i could never be like mike nobody can be like me you know so it was like well what can i do to be like josh Cronfeld? and and i guess the turning point at that top level where I actually understood how to do that was a, in a, a comment um, from uh, John Timu. And we I can't remember what game it was, and John had got given the ball, um, and it was like maybe four on to one with 10 metres out from the... Um, and so it's just him against four guys, uh, and he's 10 metres out from the try line. And, and on those four occasions, uh, on two or three occasions... He got tackled just short of the line, and and anyway, back in the day, we you know with the fans, supporters club, we're in the supporters club having having a beer, and the supporters club, oh great game, great game, John, great game, and uh, and JT goes, nah, shit, and and I was kind of sort of just eavesdropping in, you know, young boy, and he goes, what do you mean? You had a great game, you know, and he goes, in the yard, you know. I didn't, and he goes, oh, I didn't score that try, and, and he named a couple of situations. And they go, yeah, but, John, there was, like, four people on one. There was no way you could score that. And he goes, no. My job as a winger, if I'm giving the ball 10 metres out from a try line, I'm going to score. It's, that's my job. I score. And I went, wow. And I, I, I said to John, Nick, Really, mate? Yeah. That, that's just <laughs> low crazy. Percentage play. And he goes, he goes, he goes. No, that's my job. That's that's I'm meant to score. And and so I walked away. And and you know, John Timu was like this. He was at schoolboy level. So for Hawks Bay again was celebratory. Like everybody worshipped him. You know, I remember playing him, and um, we we played against him, and he was on his own try line. And I went in, I remember going in, thinking I'm going to I'll make a tackle, and he kind of ran me in between someone, and I, so I didn't get to tackle him. He carved up the whole team side to side, side to side, all the way, scored under the top post at the other end. And I went, okay, that's why he's so good. Because you know? <laughs> 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 I I, at that time I didn't realise how good he was. And then to go, and then him say that, I kind of went in that, in, that, in that situation, crikey, do I think about anything like that in my rugby game at all and I went no so and, what was the list that you and made so so I made, yeah I made this list I said well how can I what can I do as a seven so the first thing I I, I said to myself is right I'm going to be first to every single ruck no matter what so if I was at the bottom of a ruck just that I've been to I'd be fighting up and trying to get to the next ruck first and somehow it kind of started working I started cropping up in situations where I get the last pass and I get to score the try, 
you know. So all those that started happening quite regularly, and then because what was if I from a from an observer's point of view, it was that the quickness to the ruck, it was running a real it was running a real tight shoulder, yeah, and then on on defence it was turned defence into attack. Yeah, but I think that happened a little bit later, and that was so. I think that started. I mean, I was always good at that. Always had an understanding how to do that, and partly the reason why I used to do that was I was so quick. I get isolated a lot, and so back in the day, the game was a little bit more vicious than it is today. <laughs> and so, if you were out on your own, it was okay for someone to pop you and and drop a knee into you or land an elbow across the the bridge of your nose or you know try and um, remove a couple of teeth just because you thought you needed a, a crown or something like that. You know, like it's just, it was just a different dynamic. And, um, and but you kind of understood it. So I, I kind of worked out that sometimes I needed to, to go forward, I needed to go backwards. So I'd, I'd actually go and get the ball, fetch it, get there, turn it over, and actually take it back to the forwards so I could be looked after. And so consequently, this, this whole stealing process sort of, started to evolve that way you know I was like well I can get the ball now but if I pick up the ball <laughs> Paul Ennis is just going to destroy me and that's what he used to do you know like he was really good at it and and so I worked out that okay if I get the ball either I've got to go for myself now or make make a decision that no that's not the time I've got to shift it on be the link player shift it back or take a couple of steps backwards into the guys arriving and just palm it off to them, you know. So re reprocessing the ball, Recalibrate. yeah. And so that sort of happened. And but when I blew my ankle out, and you know, like back in the early days, if a winger gave me the open channel, okay, cheers, buddy, oh god, and 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 have a go around the outside because I did have genuine gas. But when I blew my ankle out, I just pretty much like cut thirty percent off. Like it was like. It was gone. And so then it was like, well, how can I change? I can't get to where I want to get as well as I used to. What else can I do? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the best at turning ball over. I'm going to, yeah. every time there's an opportunity, I'm going to nick that puppy. And that's kind of what happened. When you talked to I and mean, we've spoken about your ankle as well, do you think that what happened to you and the process that it, you went through in terms of the injury and then the recovery of the injury, knowing what you know now, would you have taken that same route? Oh. Do you think you would have maintained? Do you reckon you would have been able to maintain that speed? Because you were you were markedly quicker, and this is pre All Blacks uh, than yeah. you were when you're in the ABs. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I mean, I only had one year um, with the ABs at, at full noise. You know, that's probably the only regret. As I wish I'd had maybe two or three at full noise. Um, but in today's world, I wouldn't. Yes, I would have returned to All Black Rugby at full noise yeah. after an injury. You know, I was left to my own devices. It was like, so I remember my first day uh, of, of, of rehab was, um, all right, you're allowed to um, have your boot off now and you can start your training. And my first training was I walked around the block once and, and that hurt. And then, and so the next day I walked around the block twice and that hurt. <laughs> and then the next day I did three. And it's so And then it and added, guess what it, happened. I, I, I had it, <laughs> added the block. Until you got to block. 10 laps. Was that the mentality, Josh? Just strap her up and she'll be right. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, like my first game for the All Blacks, for instance. I got a. So I played in the trials, got a hip spiker, didn't finish the trials. I uh, got named, so I was pretty proud. But it was kind of empty because I didn't know if I was going to be able to play that first game against Canada. I didn't train with the, the team for the entire training. I, and then for the, the team run, the captain's run, they gave me a jab and wrapped me uh, full of, um, wrapped me uh, with bandage. And I got through the training. And then my, my first game was played under local, you know. So it was, it was okay, you know, in those days to do that sort of thing. And, and don't get me wrong, the injury that I had wasn't a, uh, it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't, it was just a really bad bruise in the wrong spot. And, you know, the only way I could run or move without pain was to have a jab. So it was your test debut versus Canada. Yeah. You're playing off adrenaline, obviously you've got this injury. Talk us through that moment. Who actually phoned you up and said, hey, mate, we've got the black jersey to wrap around your carcass. 
Um, so it, it's, it, it wasn't quite like that because um, they had the trials and then they um, they asked everyone, they read some names and they went into another room and then they said, oh, you're the All Blacks. And that was that was kind wow. of, that was it. And it was like, and everyone went around shaking hands and so the older players all knew. I was kind of wondering what the hell was going on. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, who did you look at and you go, I'm in the room with, and <laughs> yeah. you go, well, this could be a good room to be <laughs> yeah, in. It was a little bit like that. You know, there was Jamie Joseph was there and um, Mike Brewer and... Oh, you know, lots of the names, and you know, Sean Fitzpatrick. So it was, it was, you know, it was definitely a privilege to be uh, in that in that room with those guys at that time. Um, but I, it was kind of also a little empty because I didn't know if I was going to be able to play. You know, like it's it's just like to get named in something and then someone say, "Nah, you can't ever." Yeah. Mm. That's what it was feeling like at the time. You nostalgic guy. Have you got those jerseys? Have you got that jersey? Where do you keep uh, it? Because yeah, obviously you would have gifted a lot to people that yeah, are special. Yeah, I, I only probably have two or three jerseys left um, out of the fifty-four. I've swapped quite a few, um, and then I've given. There's lots of people that have been uh, that I've given the charities, and uh, there's a few people who've been buried in them. Um, you know, Unreal. you just I, I I don't like yeah it's you know the coolest thing I ever that I ever saw with a rugby jersey was um you remember the old school one with the real old school with a massive white fern which is what it should be you know yeah. like it's a <laughs> giant white fern and and then and then a little I think it's got an NZ underneath it and that's that was the that was the original um, jersey and um, I was over in France with Mike Clamp and he had his sixteen uh, year old son and. This jersey comes out and it's it's like tattered. It's got like the arms all torn and it's like there's holes and moth eaten and everything like that. And then I noticed it's it's this all black jersey, and I thought that's so cool. You know, like that's that's how that's how a rugby jersey should be. It's got you know it's been worn. The kid's worn it playing footy in the backyard. He's gone and done trainings with his with his rugby team. You know, he's he's been surfing in it. You know, yeah. oh, it's just it's just how it should should be used. You know, and so I have that one, um, and that's I. But I think I gave it to my mum and dad to look after, but to hang up on their wall, I think it sits in their wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get home and the dog's got it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the lining the dog kennel. Been, but that's how, it be, that's how it should be worn on the dog. Yeah, but I mean, it's uh, like, so I, my jersey, I mean, Mike's one was like big enough for his, his son to wear, but my, my, we always wore our jerseys way too big, you know, in hindsight. Look like a big tent. Yeah, yeah, they do. So I mean, I, I, I'd love my boys to, you know, but they're probably a, a year or two away from from wearing that. But I, I'd love them to be doing that. I reckon that's that's how it sh- it should be uh, used. Um, but yeah, that's it's 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 just a piece of shirt that you got to wear for a little while. A little while. It's never actually yours. Yeah. You know, you do your tenure. Um, you put your impact. Your little. Use a little zhush on the moment, and uh, then someone else, some some bugger comes along and takes it and takes it to another level. Does it feel like that even when you get in there that it's never your jersey, that you're carrying the weight of a nation on your shoulders and you're carrying on a, a, a great and honourable history of incredible rugby that's been played by this country? Yeah, look, I, I'm sure there's a different feel for everybody, um, but for me it was like it would be Michael Jones, you know, and Paul Henderson at you know, and I was going, those two pretty good rugby yeah. players. I've got to just, I just wanted to do that justice. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to be, do it right by myself. And so, um, yeah, it, it's definitely, it definitely is part of, part of the package when you get to, to wear that jersey. Um, but you do want to make it your own. Yeah. You, you want to make it yours for that as long as you can hold it. You know, I, I think that there's a there's an essence. That, well, you know, I'm I'm going to hold on to this. Yeah. Did you? Have, yeah. When you get dropped, it's not a good feeling, man. I was going to say, at what point did you go? Okay, cool. I'm on the up here, and then you felt that you're playing playing your best footy, and then obviously to every up there needs to be a down. Did you feel on the way out because it, it didn't seem that way from the outside looking in? Did you go, hey, there are some people that are really starting to nip at my heels? And there are some people that are really starting yeah, to push for this jersey. There, there was a, there was a number of things that were going, I think, happening towards the tail of my my career. Yeah, possibly I wasn't um, as effervescent as I used to be. Um, 
But I felt like at, at certain periods I was playing good rugby. But I think the game had moved away a little bit from how I wanted to play rugby. And, you know, like I'd always set up situations where people could pass to me. Yeah. And um, people weren't passing. And to me, that was that was that was my icing. That was my like my drive to to get up and smash someone, knock it over, turn the ball over, so I can get Jeff Forson to run up the corner and give me a little inside, you know. And I have my little two seconds of wonder, you know. And so I was finding that harder and harder to, to get moments of that happening because we were getting really a lot more structured. Where we were going, no, we're going to have a set phase here. We're going to go to deck. We're going to start again and then go into the and that was the professionalism side of things. But I was going, well, actually, if it's alive to keep alive, let's just keep it alive, you know? And also, who's going to die better with the ball, a back or me? You know, like, um, you know, I know how to look after the ball and retain it uh, to recycle it with our forwards. So but you sort of turned that around, Josh, because if you if you stuck with 95, you went over on the big metallic chicken over to South Africa, one of the great World Cups. Um, you know, South Africa was going through that whole apartheid era and stuff. It was when Jonah Lomu sort of came onto the world stage as well. You started actually passing the ball offloading to the great Jonah Lomu and putting him over the chalk. Oh, look, I, I, but that, that was the game. That's what I, yeah. you know, like it wasn't to die with the ball in the, and start a new structure. You know, it was about keeping the ball free and flowing. And that's and that was the rugby that's the rugby I started with in Hawks Bay, you know, and, 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 and loved. And 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 then and it grew into what Otago was and it grew into what the All Blacks were. But then it started just just as professionalism came in, it started changing and it was more structured. It was more the full pack does this, we do this in this situation. And and so a lot of the, the things that that were part of my game really got curbed and, and I and I found that quite frustrating. Like I used to get angry at the end of games because I was there to keep you know, like if you passed the ball in, I I could have passed it to the next guy and we could have scored in the corner. You know, like that there were opportunities for that to happen, but we would. What was happening is we got, I think, because of I call it a little bit of the Jonah Lomley syndrome, you know, like pass it to Jonah. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a superstar. He go as far as you can, and when you stop, we'll, we'll go from there. Or if you, or you're going to score, and so consequently, lots of guys played their rugby like that. You know, yeah. that came into into the scene, and 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 they were All Blacks, but. I didn't like it, man. I wanted to. I wanted the ball to keep flowing. I wanted to be part of the the, the next pass, you know. And so, it, 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 I was starting to feel a little disillusioned, and um, and also when your team's not going well at club or or what or provincial level, it's not going quite as well. It's harder to to be the point of difference each weekend. You know, or, or shine, and then, and so you go from that. But then you go back to the All Blacks, and you start shining again. And they go, oh, he's got a new lease of life, you know. But it's, you know, Frank Bunce was the prime example. How many times did people say he shouldn't be with the All Blacks, and then he'd be the player of the year again, you know? Um, so it's 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 just it's, as you're getting into that tail end, it gets it gets a little bit harder. But there's all these other little nuances going on that you're having to sort of manage and deal with and then you've got a young fella in the in the all black scene that's nipping at your at your heels and you kind of and you can feel that pressure and that's great and it, it can drive you to, to to greater heights as well but i think the the final decision was like um i've had when i went oh, enough's enough was when the, the i felt the all black coaching selectors and panels weren't being honest, you know, they'd say one thing to your face and then do the complete opposite the next next moment. And was that part of the professionalism of the game and them trying to tick boxes? Or know. what was the rationale behind that? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't even want to. I don't even want to put thought process into it. It just was. It made it really easy for me to want to leave. You know, I just went. Oh, you know what? I'm going to go and find something different. Do something different. What, what about being a leader in the All Blacks around that scene? Because you had the honour of um, rooming with Jonah Lomu. So you talk about the Jonah Lomu syndrome. Did you ever get in his ear, like when it's just you two, and go, "Mate, I'm not passing the nut to you anymore." <laughs> like you had a, you had dude, a. Do you not remember, how, man? Your memory's short. You see the size of that dude? Like I remember one game. Like um, I would pride myself, you know, like one on one, you know, head to head. I like fifty percent of the time, I'm going to be able to tackle him. You know, that's 
and the, I reckon there's pretty good odds, you know, because he, <laughs> he was like, you know, a good 20% heavier, faster, you know, everything. Was he that hard to tackle? Oh, yeah, he was. He was. What he was made him so well, hard South to Africa, tackle? South Africa well, was that. It's his width and his size. So it's, he, he's basically a lock that can run under 10 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like... I mean, for a hundred, it's just—it's just nuts. Nobody should be able to run that fast and be that big. It's just not fair. <laughs> are we seeing that in the modern day All Blacks now, like Shannon Frizzell, oh. Tupo? Like, are we seeing that a little bit? Oh, look, I, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, professionalism is always going to attract the different beasts. You know, um, Jonah was unique to to the times. There's no no doubt about it, and and a special. Uh, personality and 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 a crazy trait on the on the rugby field to to have, like I was saying, I, like about it. I remember um, playing against him at, at Pukekohe, and I had him lined up, man. Like I saw I saw him coming into you know the peripheral, saw him coming in, and I thought I've got you, you bugger. And he came into the line. I hit him so sweet. You know when you feel it sweet and you can feel him fold and I can feel the knees start to drop down and then suddenly I was on the ground and I saw him run through John Leslie and score under the post. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, and I'm sitting there going, how the hell did that happen? And I looked at my, and I'm looking at my hands to go, what the hell? Just you know, and I've got a piece of shorts in both <laughs> sets of hands. You know, it was just like that. The, even technology was letting me down then. Yeah. <laughs> so you you finish up uh, you finish up a, an, a, an illustrious footy career. What 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 after that? I mean, what do you do when you spend that much time? Like you talk about the camaraderie of your your Hawks Bay days, and you talk about the camaraderie of the University Rugby scene and the Otago Rugby scene, and then the All Blacks, and then you get slightly disillusioned. What you know? Does uh, well, the phone uh, stop ringing? Yeah. Uh, How well, does that feel? I don't, yeah, it's interesting. Like because I, I went overseas, and so I think that's actually quite a nice break um, because you know, like in New Zealand, it's you are, you know, you, everybody's around you. You, yeah. you. You're cultivated as this this rugby star, and everybody's wants a piece, and and that's and that's what happens as an All Black, and that's what you should expect. So if you sign, if you become an All Black, and um, you're 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 a starter week in week out, dude, don't ex- you need to expect that people are going to want to spend time with you. That's just the how it works. You can't. Can't get upset about that. But that's, it, that's that's the game. Does it change for you now? I mean, like you've got a young family, and like mate, we've talked about this at length before. Like you're you're an idol for me now, and you're an idol when I was growing up. And it, once you've worn that black jersey, it doesn't change. No, it doesn't dissipate. Doesn't, doesn't stop. But do you ever want to get that break and just go? Look, that was a long time ago now, or it's starting to get a, to be a long time ago now. <laughs> just give me a break. <laughs> uh, look, I think if you need to, you can say that to people. You just say, look, I, I, look, I'm here with my wife. We're having a romantic time. You know? <laughs> what a liar. Why don't we listen to this guy? Hey, which wife is this? <laughs> you know, um, you know, um, you, you, you can you can manage it. It's it's it is what it is. But I mean, I, my family kind of, you know, I'm really fortunate. My wife, um, in in her world, she's been there and done that. So like. She, She's been like an international hairdresser. She's worked at top level, British hairdresser of the year and New Zealand. She does a great job. You know, yeah, yeah, it's not much to save these <laughs> days, bro. And and so she's worked with you know like um, Ozzy Osbourne, you know like all the all the all all the greats in in, in showbiz and stuff. She's done here and she's worked at high pressure situations, you know, with those massive shows and and so she gets it. Mm. You know, and so when someone comes up and wants a, a moment or whatever, I'm usually oblivious. Well, you know how vacant I am at the best of times. <laughs> I'm in my own world, and, you know, and uh, I might be having a J moment, you know, <laughs> and and, um, and and it's all going on. And she goes, hey, um, that, that guy's looking to meet you. He's been watching you for ages. So. <laughs> and so I go, oh, yeah, yeah, you go, and we're, in, and, we're, and we're back into it. So she embraces it and she'll take the photos. And then, so my two boys, it's been quite interesting for them too. Because, so my youngest, um, I, I'm, you know, obviously I did the, the baby part of it all the way through him. So he spent his whole first tenure of pe- 
complete randoms walking up and going, hey, Josh, and shaking my hand. And I go, hey, uh, Ted, do you you know that guy? And I go, (laughs) no. And he goes, goes, buddy, why does he shake your hand? And he says, well, that's what you do when you meet someone, you shake your hand, you know. And um, He's just shaking hands left, right and centre now, isn't he? Yeah, so that was it. So every time someone would come up, his hand's going out. And then, of course, the people would miss his hand. And I go, he'd go, Dad, that guy wouldn't shake my hand. I had my hand out. And I'd go... I say, well, did you make eye contact with him? <laughs> you got to always <laughs> make eye contact. So, <laughs> so the very next time some guy rocks up and shakes his hand and he's getting annoyed, he's in there with his eyes trying to get the, you know. So that's, so they they come, they they embrace it too. And then once they understand what it is to be an all black, they're pretty proud of it. Yeah. Like they're, they're, my, my oldest is the first to say, you know, that's my dad, he's an all black. He's an all black, you know, yeah. it's, and um, the the youngest one's a little bit different. He doesn't, he, sometimes he's into it and then other times he goes, oh, stop it, mate, stop yeah. it, you know. But it's, it, it's they're their own individuals, but it, 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 is, it, it is quite nice. The family kind of deals with it and manages it. Yeah. yeah. I actually, re- I reckon you'll reach your peak um, down the track. You got the phone call to do, you know, Dancing with the Stars, following <laughs> Billy Elliot's footsteps, two left feet. <laughs> Um, you know, like Bambi on Ice, mate, you did a fantastic job. But talk <laughs> us about that. And then also you went on to win Celebrity Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. You got the man. carcass out. You're looking fantastic. <laughs> There's some big names there. I won't drop any Asia Rock and, and yeah. co. But um, how were those experiences? Yeah, well, they were different, man. They, like, um, I, so when I finished rugby, uh, I came back and I, I was probably in New Zealand for about a month, a uh, month and a half. And uh, and then I just I I had a – I told myself when I finished rugby, I was going to travel for a year. And so I had this plan in, in, in place pretty much for the last two years I've been planning it. And so I, I, f- I flew into the States and um, got on a Harley-Davidson and backpacked pretty much all the West Coast and yo-yoed down, went in as far east as Tex- Texas and, and Austin. And um, and then, then I got on a plane and flew down to uh, Santiago and um, I bought a vi- uh, truck there and lived out of the truck and uh, just travelled um, in Chile, mostly Chile, because I couldn't get my truck out. They kept thinking I'd stolen it. <laughs> so um, it meant that most of my trip ended up being staying in, in Chile. But it was it was the most amazing trip ever. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, dry, where can you drive in New Zealand like 200k out into the middle of nowhere and, and there'd be no one there, you know? I mean... You got to go and find a piece of bush to do that, um, and you got to walk in. You can't drive in. You know, it's just it was just mind blowing. And so I spent a lot of time with myself, um, and and surfing crazy breaks, um, and it was just it was magical. And and then came back through Easter Island. Um, that was a crazy crazy place. Couple and of crabs there, eh? Yeah, there's a few. <laughs> and then, <laughs> dude, well, is that where they have the Christmas crab? No. Nah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I've got that completely wrong. <laughs> National Geographic with ant. Uh, anyway, um, and then it was back to New Zealand, and um, and then I went back to uni. So I, I, I guess I came back to New Zealand, um, and I'd been out of it for a while, so it didn't matter. You know, I had no need or want to get back into it and because I've been on my own for so long I mean I remember being in the states where I've been driving through a section and just going in and just using the honesty box to stay the night at a at a out in the country and then or just swiping the car when I was filling the the gas and and I finally thought and you know they have a gas station they have a little diner right there so I thought oh, I'll go and have something to eat and, and I went in and, and the lady goes um how you going there lad and, you know and I said uh and I went to say, yeah, good. And I came out and was like, ah, ah, ah. So <laughs> I hadn't spoken to anyone in a week. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, that's that's such a weird thing to do. Because, yeah. you know, I, you know how social I am. I'm yeah. talking to people all the time. And and so it, it, um, it, I think that really balanced me. So, you know, and the other thing is I remember the day that I woke up and said I'm over it. Yeah. I'm done. And it was just literally – I got out of bed and I put my feet on on the floor and I went, 
That's it. Were you done with travelling or done with footy? I'm done with footy. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I'm done. Was it maybe that trip and that travel that you took, was that almost the decompression that you needed from probably years of being sort of, and there was no way else that, no, you know, probably wasn't the level of thought put into dealing with that for, for that era of player? Yeah, look, I reckon it was. Definitely I came back a, a real fresh person. And, and um, you know, like I, I applied for university to go back to university to do the uh, physio degree while I was while I was travelling. So, um, you know, that was a decision as well because I almost didn't come back. I, you know, like I... I Could have been an Easter Island looking for the crabs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd still be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it was... Yeah, I, I, it was an amazing, amazing discovery. I mean, like sitting out in deserts... Yeah. You're the only person, and nothing's living. It's just there's 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 some spiritual shit that goes on in your brain. Yeah. I don't, and and I I wasn't processing it then at all. You know, like you know, or I can remember sitting in, um, in the middle of nowhere, a place that I, a little surf break that I did, I discovered. I don't, I don't know what it was called, and it was just absolutely cranking. I surfed it for two days on my own, um, didn't see a single person. Um, there was great big. Um, I discovered later on the Man of Wars, you know, those big jellyfish yeah. coming through the through the lineup, and I remember sitting there, um, and it's in a desert sort of situation between um, Arika and um, Akiki, and I remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I was sitting there eating my, my my breakfast, just going, "This is nuts." Yeah. Look at this place, you know, and it's. Shit jumping out in the water, and and it was just, it just, it just, you know, I felt really at one, and it's just like, do I really want to go back to being in the real world? You know, like I was living on nothing, man. Like you know, the the most expensive thing I had was the truck. You know, it was, and because you could live on a few dollars, you know, got to love pie de limon, man. That's that's good stuff. What's pie de limon? Lemon meringue pie, man. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> Leffield. Oh, mate, this is great stuff. Well, that, I, I think we could almost conclude part one of what will be about six parts uh, with Josh Cronfield, mate. Like I said, big fan of yours and really stoked to get you on. I know the chats are endless. There's so much stuff that I still want to, I still want to get to uh, with your career. We didn't even touch on the, the, the headgear, uh, but that can we can save that for oh, part man. two. You can do a part two for sure. Fantastic. Oh, you've got so many different stories, <laughs> Thank you very much, big fella. Appreciate yeah. you. Absolute legend, mate. Ants, you were really quiet, man. I was expecting a lot more shit. <laughs> <laughs>